Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So, for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. children of the night. Step on into the cabin and find yourself a seat and warm yourself up. I won't take up too much of your time with my hostly greetings this evening before we get on to our stories for the evening. Two quick items, though. Remember to stick around after our stories. Starting last week and continuing for the four episodes after this, we'll be hearing some guest music from Songs of the Pumpkin Boy. You'll find their link in the show notes for more info. The second item is that as of this release of this episode, the Goodreads Choice Awards finalist should be just about out. I am recording this during the first round of voting, but M.R. Carey is my horse in this race. I haven't read the book that's nominated, but it's up next to read. And did you read The Girl with All the Gifts? Uh, Pretty good, pretty good. I hear there's a movie in the works. After all these years, I can still muster up some optimism from translation from ink to screen. Let's hear some scary stories. Our first one for the evening comes from Sean Hamilton. Sean has a number of stories published in UK and Australian magazines. He shared that the piece that you'll hear tonight was written in early 2009 and accepted to Hub Magazine in July of the same year. And then, the year afterwards, a local theater group commissioned a script based on the story with the intention of using it as their first foray into cinema. Give us your ears for Sean Hamilton's My Parent's Son. I reckon only three of the Greasy Spooner's patrons possess any potential. As per the usual requirements, they all wear a grey slug around their throat carrying the thing like a hangman's noose before the hatch gives way. To my left, an old woman washes her false teeth with her cup of stewed tea. On the table next to hers is a teenage mum who'd prefer to aid her obesity than quiet her baby's screams. At the back of the room, close to the mucky door that leads to the toilets, sits a goth student whose mood reaches over to me like Mr. Tickle's ridiculously long arms, 
but loses any of the humour in transit. The thing feels as black as her hair. As I said, they each wear the moniker, a slimy scarf, and as the rest of them throughout the world, they're oblivious to its touch. That said, no one else littering the cafe's leprous leno owns an aura. This isn't some Doris Stokes seance where everyone attending glows like they're a congregation of nuclear families. Only those with a genuine reason might enjoy such a prestigious prize. And this trilogy is more than qualified. Sipping at my coffee, supermarket instant, supposedly Brazilian strength, black, no sugar. I stare at the three, contemplating each one's suitability. Surely one of them will satisfy my needs, won't they? Density is the key. The thicker, the better. If the aura is viscous and heavy, it's sure to keep me going for a minimum of 12 hours. If there's any transparency, it'll provide less sustenance than a cracker, and I'll be ravenous within 40 minutes. I can't eat solid food. Solid food makes me puke. I've been sitting here for a little over an hour, and these delicate creatures have proven to be my best prospects. Before these, a few minor vapors had entered and vacated the cafe, but nothing substantial. Now I've breakfast, lunch, and dinner, all in one go. I'm reminded of London buses. The problem is, I can only take one at a time. Any more is just as bad as a real food meal. I've tried consuming a congregation, following my usual routine, but doing it on couples and threesomes, but it doesn't work. I end up empty. More than one equals none. So you have to ask yourself the question, what's the point of going to all the work for fuck all? Therefore, as much as it pains me to do, that shows you how hungry I am, I have to make a choice. Who, out of the geriatric, the goth, and the gargantuan, will give me with the best meal? And straight away, I know the old woman is a waste of time. Despite being the hottest day of the year, the silly mare insists on wearing a thick camel coat, maximum denier tights, and what looks like three skirts. Dark cuffs of leather gloves emerge from her pockets, and fighting for occupancy with her aura is a black feather scarf. Has this woman never heard of staying cool? Her slug, though fairly dense, has thin vapors rising from it like smoke leaving a burning window. This is a sign that her aura is waning. Soon she will have nothing. Why it's like this, the aura doesn't say. And, since she has no idea of its presence, there's little point to asking the old dear. So I have to speculate. Perhaps her outlook on life has changed, or maybe her health is deteriorating, and she hasn't longed for this life. Who knows? But what is for certain is, if I were to feed from her, then I know I'll be on the search again within a couple of hours. And that would be pointless. I've not slept properly for too long, I can't risk being woken up with hunger pangs after only an hour's sleep. Because that's what would happen, and continue to happen, until my hunger is fully satisfied. Sadly, this woman would be no more than lining on the stomach, an aperitif. Someone I need to avoid if I'm after a main course and not a starter. Granny is a no-no.
the goof. Teenagers always carry the strongest auras. Fact. It's their hormones. They rage through their bodies like a rapist in a nunnery. With a barrel full of new chemicals flushing the brains, what choice do they have but to find themselves wallowing in hypertension and slothfulness? They're left questioning what's right and what's wrong in a world that adamant hates them. And more often than not, they end up taking action without considering the consequences. We've all been there, but when we're going through it, we think we're the only ones. That no one else is suffering or has suffered quite like us. And apart from our friends, perhaps, there's no one we can confide in. We certainly don't trust teachers or parents. And even then, there are those unable to communicate. Those who feel they have no friends and end up hating themselves as a consequence. Their auras have proven so dense at times, it's a wonder they have demolished walls. And she's no different to those lonely creatures. Her body might be wrapped up in black cotton and lace and her face smeared in horror movie makeup, but her slug is as thick as a concrete column. This girl truly hates herself. But I'll save her for another day. Her face is familiar. We'll meet again. Take it away, Vera. My eyes fall on the young mother, and without doubt, I know where my evening's entertainment lies. It isn't that she's killing herself with the cakes and donuts she stuffs into that great black hole of a gob of hers, or that she does it with great aplomb. Despite her fingers being weighed down by a collage of fake sovereigns and three layers of chipped nail varnish, nor is it the clothes she's wearing that are three sizes too small for her, skin-tight velvet tracksuit that shows all those trying to eat the bulbous skin beneath. It isn't even the fact that she's blatantly ignoring the no-smoking signs and has half a dog-end glued to her cracked lips. No, it's none of these. The reason I intend to take my pleasure out on her is her attitude towards her kid. First, she ignores its cries. And these are genuine cries of hunger or pain, not attention-seeking bawls. Then she screams at it, and finally, bending over to yell in its face, she drops fag ash into its mouth. That, as they say, simply isn't cricket. She probably treats her dog better than she does her baby, and I bet that's part of an RSPCA investigation. Kill yourself if you want to, but have some respect for your offspring. Standing, I walk over to a counter marked with ketchup stains and burst fag burns. At one end of the veneer is a stand filled with packets of outdated crisps, and the other end is the old woman I pay my tab to. This place is my regular Friday afternoon haunt, and as per every previous visit, she offers me a crooked smile and wishes me a good day. I've been coming here for over 12 months, and I still don't know the old girl's name. Not that I need to. It's just that sometimes it would be good to say, That was bloody awful brew today, Doris. Or, Any chance of a red bull, Vera? I should do it, but I can't be arsed. I'm not in the business of making friends. Money paid, change given, tip ignored. I make my way to the exit, past the abusive mother. I purposely brush myself against her. 
lightly stroking her greasy curls with my hands as though trying to get her to move out of my way. The ignorant cow remains immobile. Having garnered my materials, I make my way to the warped glass door. Turning to look at her, I wonder if she's noticed anything different, if she knows what's about to happen. The ignorant mare continues to fill her face with yet another chocolate eclair. Her child, boy, girl, impossible to tell under all that filth, continues to whimper, no doubt wondering why the inside of its mouth hurts so much. The slug of her aura is thick and glutinous, just ripe for picking. I leave and make my way to bed. Sleeping, I go to work. My subconscious takes me straight to her thoughts. Her name is Carrie. Carrie Hanley. She's 18. 18! I've seen 80-year-olds more likely to be confused for a teenager than Miss Hanley. And her young boy, who now suffers with a blistered mouth, is only nine months old and has already been to hospital twice. The first time was for a bang to the head, which Carrie claimed came from a mug fallen from a shelf and hitting the poor kid. Carrie knows the truth. I've no intention of giving it life. And the second time had nothing to do with Carrie's abusive tendencies. The complete opposite, in fact. In a rare moment of caring, when she saw the boy had a rash on her cheeks, she was adamant it was meningitis. A hospital visit proved it to be nothing more than his mother dressing him in clothes too heavy for the spring weather, but, you know, fair play to the girl. She did the right thing. And then she goes and spoils it by using the poor sod as an ashtray. She is single, living on benefits with her mother and a stepfather she despises and thinks bad things of. She's adamant he stares at her for too long and believes he's watched her in the shower through the bathroom's obscure glass. He once caught her naked in her room as she was changing for a night out, and she's convinced the sight of her naked body gave him a hard-on. Her turn, not mine. Most would have turned away embarrassed, but he just stood there, getting a good look in so he had something to remember when he had his next wank. Again, hers, not mine. She wants to tell her mother, but can't because she feels she'll side with her husband and kick her and baby Brad, after Brad Pitt, out and leave them to fend for themselves on the streets. She and her mother don't get on. Amazingly, her mother thinks Carrie wants to fuck her husband. What has that man got? She's scared. She's scared and filled with panic. If she's kicked out, where will she go? She can't go to Brad's father. He was a one-night stand in a nightclub car park, and she hasn't seen him since their few minutes of passion, and the rest of her family doesn't exist. She's an only child with no aunts, uncles, or grandparents. She's just as alone as the goth girl. But that doesn't excuse the way she treats her poorly named child. As I walk through her mind, she tells me these things and more. She doesn't know of my presence, or if she does, it's a sensation similar to a headache and she deals with it in her own way. So I easily learn her secrets. Nothing is hidden. Not even the day as a five-year-old when she thought she was getting a bike for Christmas but woke to be told Santa doesn't exist and Mummy and Daddy can't afford luxuries. 
as they buried themselves in a crate of lager and a bottle of Bailey's. I searched the shadows of her darkest corners, scavenging for ideas in mythical cupboards. Her mind is a library, and so I read. When she realized she was pregnant, she wanted an abortion, to get rid of the thing and live her life as any other 17-year-old girl might, booze, pills, powder, and sex. And while I have no intention to judge, who am I kidding? You can't blame her for wanting to live like her peers. She wasn't the first to make a mistake, so why should she be forced to live by it? But the question became irrelevant. When it came down to it, when it came down to phoning the clinic and making the appointment, when it came down to confirming she was going to terminate the fetus growing inside her, she couldn't do it. She couldn't find the will or the courage, she always wonders at that word, to carry it out. Whenever she thought of going through with it, the image of a fetus with open eyes, staring, accusing her of all things blasphemous, scorched her mind. Two giant white orbs on a balled-up pile of slime and muscle daring her to tell the man to do it. The image said nothing of the life she would have to surrender, of the dreams she would be forced to put on hold. Let's be honest. What dreams did young Carrie have beyond maybe getting Jeremy Kyle pumped into her brain 24-7? And ultimately, baby Brad won. The battle, but not the war. The poor sod was paying for it now, tenfold. Ash in the mouth? What's next? Hypodermic in the anus? It took months before she told her mother of the pregnancy, and when she did, she got the reaction she'd been expecting. Mum thought she was too young to be a grandmother, that she couldn't be called Nanny yet. She was barely into her thirties. How could Carrie have aged her like this? The only advantage came with the stepdad. When he knew the truth, he stopped watching her so much. But that didn't stop the depression. That didn't stop the self-harm and thoughts of her ending it all. That didn't stop her aura's growing. She often questions her role in life, wonders if those around her might be better off without her, like George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life. She wonders if the world would be a better place if she were no longer part of it. If she hadn't been conceived, her parents might have stayed together. Her stepfather would never have entered her mother's life and she wouldn't have met that guy in the nightclub and fallen pregnant because she'd gone there after the stepdaddy had suggested she and he do something inappropriate. If she hadn't been born, she'd never have met the bastard. If she didn't exist, her friends might be better people, people with ambitions and hope, instead of the dull, hungry whores they had succumbed to be. If she hadn't been born, she'd never have felt the need to degrade herself just so she had people willing to do things with her and talk to her and spend time with her. If she hadn't been born, she would have never known the pain of loneliness. If she hadn't been pissed out of her mother's womb, the people around her would be so much happier. If she's George Bailey, does that make me Clarence? Her self-pity is nothing new to me. In truth, it's the stuff I need. Without it, there would be no auras on which I could feed, no link to Carrie Hanley. As I said before, 
I cannot eat real food. I'm allergic to meat and vegetables. Real and those plastic alternatives known commonly as ready meals. They make me vomit. Carrie's food and the food of her fucked up family and friends would probably kill me. I eat auras. Auras allow me to function. But most importantly, they afford me the ability to sleep. Otherwise, I'm incapable of rest. So I must consume her grey slug. I begin. I talk to her gently. Peacefully. I use words that will convince her. Give her the patter she longs to hear. She thinks my words are her own thoughts. She thinks that in her sleep she has once again fallen into a state of depression. If only. It is me. It is me telling her what she must do to take away the pain. I am good at my job. But she will do as I insist. She will follow my instructions and bring an end to her misery. Her aura will dissipate and I shall feed. The world will have one less abusive teenage mom scrounging off the state and I will be able to sleep. All is good in the world. Carrie Henley's suicide makes the front page of the local paper. It stares back at me from the welcome mat in front of my front door, put there by an enthusiastic paperboy during my convalescence. Apparently, she wanted some attention as she made her way out of the world. That would explain why she chose to throw herself off a motorway bridge and into the fast lane of the M6. No one else was hurt. How? But she did as soon as her five-foot-tall and sixteen-stone frame smashed into the tarmac, and the white van that ran over her spattered remains made sure the deal was a good one. Refreshed with sleep and coffee, I take a shower. I'm hungry. Have you ever wondered if this will ever end? The question comes from the girl lying beside me, Sarah Williams. We're in my bed, post-coital, sharing a joint and a bottle of Chardonnay. The year's longest day is a week behind us, but there is little difference in the start time for nights drawn in. It's after ten, and the scene penetrating my window is nearer a bloody brown than a charcoal black. Not bothering with the bedside lamps or overhead spots, we lie in the dusty dark. Shadows formed by a sullen moon accentuate beauty, casting dark hollows over Sarah's slender body. Mounds and flat horizons join in sensual unison. Though she is less than four feet tall, she is frighteningly beautiful. Sarah is someone I once came close to aiding on her way. Thankfully, I decided against it at the last minute. Despite her slug being one of the thickest I had encountered, her beauty was indescribable. The tragedy behind her eyes captivated me. I'd never felt sympathy for any of them before her, and none since. So, when I started to question my reasoning for taking her, I knew I couldn't do it. It was like a pedophile with a class full of children who decided to let one free because he'd discovered love at first sight. I couldn't take her. And when it's like that, when you find yourself questioning reasons that mutate into excuses... You know it's more beneficial to convince that person to sleep with you than to turn them into dinner. 
Wondered if what will end, I ask, sipping the chilled wine, enjoying its coolness in this evening's muggy heat. Despite our nakedness and having kicked the duvet onto the floor, we're both sheathed in a coat of perspiration that has nothing to do with the energies of our lovemaking. You know, Sarah says, sucking on the joint's tapered end, this life you lead, killing for the sake of killing. You know as well as I do that it cannot end, not yet anyway. Answering her question, I grab the tissue from the bedside cabinet, wrap it around my Wilton erection, and remove the used condom. Scooping the thin rubber into the Kleenex's womb, I pull the thing off and discard the whole package onto the bedroom floor. They'll be at one with the toilet bowl before the morning light. As long as my parents are alive, I have to do this. Anyway, why do you have to bring this up again? It's not as if you don't know the situation. I had explained everything to Sarah the night I wandered through the corridors of her mind, convincing her to join me. If I wasn't going to persuade her to suicide, then it was only fair I fill her in on the whole picture before telling her to remove her knickers for me. I suppose there's a moralistic issue here, but for the life of me, I cannot find it. I'm just kidding. Well, I'm starting to struggle with the whole scenario. It's not easy knowing your boyfriend is a serial killer. I'm not a serial killer, I state sharply, stunned by the accusation. Serial killers kill for the fun of it. I do it to live. If I didn't put people out of their misery, the sad and lonely, remember, not normal people. Well, if I didn't take them, I wouldn't feed. And if I don't feed, I don't sleep. And if I don't sleep, my parents suffer. I swallow a large gulp of wine and snatch the spliff from her lips, angered by her allegation. And besides, I wheeze in between drags, who said I was your boyfriend? As far as I remember, we agreed we're just a couple who enjoyed the occasional shag. She turns away and I can see my words have physically hurt her. Good. Serves her right for calling me a murderer. Standing at the mark only she sees where the wall meets the ceiling, she sips at her chardonnay. Indignant. Wounded. At her most dangerous. Anyway, I continue, acting as though everything is normal. You wouldn't have been too upset if you'd seen that Hanley bitch. The heartless cow dropped fag ash in her baby's mouth and did nothing to sort it out. No panic, no brushing away or washing the kid's mouth out. She just carried on stuffing her face with her cakes. I mean, what kind of mother does that? I was doing the kid a favor by taking a mother like that away from him. I offer her the roach back, my way of apologizing, cheap and cheerful. I don't love Sarah, but I know my life would be a whole lot quieter and thus more boring without her. She's unbelievably sexy and could do things with her body that would make most porn stars jealous, but our relationship goes beyond the physical. She's the only woman to whom I've revealed the truth and is the first one I call upon when I'm feeling a bit lonesome, something I'm prone to after sleeps. So my comment about her not being my girlfriend is a fact, but I also know she cannot differentiate between shag partners and lovers. So she has no choice but to call me her boyfriend, whether I want her to or not. 
She can't call me her life partner or her companion, so what choice does she have? She takes the joint from me. Putting her glass down on her bedside table, she inhales, taking a deep breath, sucking hard on the paper, tobacco and marijuana combination, as though she were an asthmatic, taking in a lungful of medication. The tip flares orange and red, offering a brief light to the dull room before hiding inside a thick fog of dance and smoke. She breathes deep, and I can feel the drug into her system. Her eyes grow wide and moisten. Her cheeks distort. Her skin changes shade. Even in this light, it's noticeable. I see her point with this one, she says, referring to Carrie Hanley and my work. As she does so, she slows her breathing down, easing the dope into her bloodstream. Exactly, I reply. Hardly the actions of a serial killer. She turns to look at me. The pale moon, full and clear, awaiting a bat's outline to give it that comic effect, reflects in her green eyes, reminding me of the distortion created with a photograph negative. What was once black is now brilliant white. You know I didn't mean it like that. It's just, well, I just sometimes wish we could live a normal life. Every time a suicide is reported in the papers, I know you've been at work. And it worries me that this is becoming more than just a necessity for you. I know you have to do it to keep yourself and your mom and your dad going. But it feels like sometimes you revel in what you do. She reaches out to retrieve her wine. I mean this Hanley woman. Did you have to tell her to throw herself into the fast lane of the motorway like that? What if she'd fallen on a car? What if someone else had been killed? What if there had been a pile-up? Surely that would have made you a murderer? Surely killing without need makes you a killer instead of a simple euthanasia advocate? She takes another drag on the joint, the sound of burning ash deafening in the silence she leaves behind. And something else, she says, not offering me a chance to refute. You've changed recently. You're getting more of a kick out of what you're doing. There was a time when you felt guilt and remorse. But they're gone. It's as if... As if it's become a drug to you. The Mark Joyce who stopped me from killing myself isn't the same Mark Joyce lying next to me. If you had found me today instead of when you did, you'd have had me throwing myself in front of a train or swallowing razor blades. So what do you want me to do about it? I ask, my head filling with a rage that breaks my voice. Try remembering, I shout, pointing a finger in her face. If it weren't for me, you wouldn't be here now. Smoking my drown, drinking my wine. You'd be at the bottom of the canal. So that's what you had planned for me. No, no, I wasn't. Stop being so pedantic. I was just pulling something out of the hat. It's called Offer an example. I snatch the joint, take a drag, and extinguish it between my fingers, ignoring the burning. If I've changed, maybe it's because I'm sick of living an existence where I can't survive without killing. Maybe I'm pissed off at seeing slugs all around me, at not being able to sleep until I found my victim, at not being able to sleep without knowing someone will be dead by the time I wake up. You're not the only one who finds it tiresome. 
you try devising manners by which you can kill someone on a daily basis. But why can't you do them all the same, peacefully on a drugs overdose perhaps? She asks with concern toward people she has never known. Do you eat the same meal every day? Do you feed yourself on the same flavors day in, day out? Of course you don't. So why should I? I've told you before that different people, different ages, and different deaths give me a taste variety. Jesus, Mark, that's gross, and you know it is. She murmurs, finishing her wine, as if trying to wash my statement down. Gross or not, I reply sardonically. It's the truth. I stand from the bed and pad naked through to my apartment's kitchen to fetch more wine. Whilst I'm gone, I try and breathe my anger away, to dissolve it in carbon dioxide and spit it out for my plants to feast on. The bottle's cool glass as I retrieve it from the fridge helps to bring my blood pressure down, and as I enter my bedroom, I'm calmer and ready to discuss the point. Entering the room, Sarah offers me the fine sight of her naked posterior. On all fours, she turns her head to watch my entering. Let's not argue, she says. Placing the wine on my bedside cabinet, I reach for the condoms. My parents are special. I know every child feels this, but in my case, it's not childish exaggeration. They really are special. Admittedly, I didn't discover how special until I hit puberty, when everything started to go weird for the Joyce family. But it's true to say my parents have an extra special talent. They also have an extra special son. It started with my not being able to sleep. I remember my last night of proper sleep as if it were yesterday. It was the night before my twelfth birthday. The anniversary of my birth triggered the insomnia, and the insomnia was the electric flux to the light that is my ability. Admittedly, the morning after that first night, I didn't really care. I was too wound up with all my birthday celebrations and stuffed with chocolate cake. But the following day, I was so knackered that I thought I'd be in bed before the sun. How wrong could I be? I tried everything. Reading, hot milk, wanking. I even tried those herbal pills that are supposed to slip you into a coma, but nothing worked. I had bags under my eyes, so big that my PE teacher joked about packing my gym kit in them. It wasn't too long after that I started seeing the auras. Thick, grey, dead slugs wrapped around the necks of friends and strangers alike. School was filled with them, as were the streets. The pavements were awash with them, some thick, some thin, some dense, some transparent. At the time, lost in my sleep deprivation and naivete, I figured they were the latest fashion accessory I was missing out on and had to rectify. I asked friends where they got them from, but they looked at me as if I were stupid. I searched shop windows to no avail, so I asked my parents if they could buy me one. And that was how I found out everything. That's when they sat down and told me about my gift, told me how special I really was. They didn't go into detail. They were adamant that the best way to learn was by experiencing the whole thing for myself. They told me to go out and find someone with an aura who I felt some sympathy for. Once I found that person, I shouldn't say anything to them. Just touch them lightly and come straight home. Straight home and straight to bed. 
touching and speaking to no one else. That was very important, otherwise the spell would be broken. Once I was in bed, my subconscious would explain it all, and I would sleep. Two hours later, after an amazing amount of confusion, I was having to cope with my voice deepening, my balls dropping, and hair growing in strange places, as well as all this surrealness, and my touching the white hair of a bent old woman who seemed to be collapsing under the weight of her aura outside our front garden. I was in bed, eyes closed, fast asleep. I was twelve and one week. My subconscious took me to her, offering me everything about her, her life, her loves, but more than anything else, her pains. She was ninety-four, her husband was long dead, and her only son had recently died of heart failure, leaving her without the company of grandchildren. He wasn't a fan of women, only his mummy. Other than a few friends at the bingo, she had no one left and felt only the weight of loneliness. She didn't want to sit in an empty house any longer. Didn't want to sit there, knowing the phone wasn't going to ring. Knowing the only voices she would hear would be those on the television or the radio, or even worse, those in her head. She had lived through too much to be punished in such a cruel manner. She wanted to be with her husband and son. She wanted to be with her loved ones. So I, Michael Joyce, age 12, convinced a 94-year-old woman to take a sleeping pill overdose. To this day, I can still remember her thanks. When I woke, two days later, I woke with the innocence of a child and the understanding of an adult. My parents were right. My subconscious did explain things to me, but it had also left some blanks. Blanks I needed my mum and dad to answer. So what did they tell you? Sarah and I were once again resting post-coital, only this time we are relying solely on the wine to bring us down rather than the adage of a joint. Because we'd argued and she felt guilty, no idea as to why, but I'm man enough to let her take the brunt of things, Sarah had let me do that special thing to her that I lack so much, and now she's cooling herself by fanning the stodgy air circulating her buttocks. Very matter-of-factly. I replied, sipping at the Chardonnay that had worn significantly during our escapades. It turned out they'd been waiting for my questions since my conception, so they knew exactly what to say. It was as though they were reciting a memorized script. That didn't bother you? The idea that they'd kept it from you for so long? Not really. Up till my twelfth birthday, I was the same as any other kid. They could hardly turn round and say to me on my fourth birthday, Mark... You might not believe this, but one day you'll have to kill to survive. You'll start seeing grey slugs around people's necks, and you'll have to kill them just so you can sleep. If they'd done that, I'd have gone out and told the whole world about it, which was exactly the wrong thing to do. Spreading of the word can be lethal if not done properly. No, they did it the right way. I had to find out for myself. But you couldn't find it all out for yourself. You still didn't know about what would happen to them if you tried to fight it? No, no I didn't. Seems pretty sneaky to me, keeping the bit that involves them quiet. Yes, well, I say, annoyed by the insult. You've never been in that situation, so I don't think you can question it. I take a large gulp of wine, using it as a mean to purge my anger. Sorry, Sarah says. I didn't mean, well, you know what I meant. I'm just thinking of you. 
As if to emphasise the point, she adds more of the lemony wine to her bum, as if trying to remind me of what she'd let me do with her. I half expect to see steam rising from her pale landscape. It's okay, I reply, noting her actions and smiling on the inside at her manipulation. It's just I can understand why they did it, so I don't like it when someone has a go at them. It wasn't exactly a normal situation, so they did the best they could. It's certainly a lot more awkward than trying to explain the birds and the bees. She laughs. The tension lifts and we continue. My mum and dad were both sitting on the end of my bed, waiting for me to wake. They knew I'd be full of questions, so they sat there in preparation. I remember being startled at first. I mean, who wouldn't be? You wake up from the weirdest of dreams to find two people sitting on the edge of your mattress? Enough to scare Freddy Krueger! But when the sleep left my eyes and I saw who it actually was, I understood. Their words told me the facts, but their eyes told me the truth. They told me that I was still human. It was just that I was extra special. There were others out there like me, but because everyone is sworn to secrecy, they didn't know who they were, and it didn't matter anyway, because one day I'd find someone to talk to about it all, and until then I got them. And they were right. I did find someone. My sudden grasping of an emotion that's more than lust and friendship catches me off guard. My voice shakes and Sarah reaches out, holding my hand. Understanding. They told me that my dad had been the special one in their relationship and that I'd inherited his genes. Apparently, I have a whole family tree filled with suicidalists on his side. My mother was the same as you. A dwarf? No, not a dwarf, I reply smiling. She was an outsider, a rescue, a love. Love? I continue unabated. He found her in the street with a slug around her neck and knew there and then he was going to marry her. As daft as it sounds, it was a tale of love at first sight. He rushed over, made idle chat with her, something about her hair color, lightly touched the blonde curls and then slipped away to join her in her mind. He didn't even have to manipulate her. She liked him straight away. They were married three months later. I was a honeymoon sprog. Is that when they told you about the repercussions? Repercussions? You know, what would happen to them once you came along? Hmm, I say, turning to look at the void of the ceiling. Night had finally arrived in all its black glory. I've never thought of myself as a repercussion before. Seems like a decent description when you think about it. Sorry, Sarah says, wounded. I turn back to her and see silky pale skin holding the moon's attention. There's no need to apologize. It's as I said, it's a pretty good description. But in answer to your question, yes, that's when they told me about the repercussions. I could see it wasn't easy for them, but I'm glad they did it. I needed to hear everything, even though I was only a kid. I needed it all. It's like the first time you go to McDonald's. You want the whole menu. Well, that's how I was then. Please tell me you don't still want the whole menu. Only if you're on it. Good, she replies. I get the feeling I've just passed a test of some kind. Anyway, they told me from the moment I was conceived my dad's vision stopped. He no longer saw the slugs. He could sleep properly. And he and my mother had been able to do so right up until my twelfth birthday. 
That's when it all changed, for both of them and me. I wasn't the only one going through sleep deprivation. It's just that I couldn't see it because I was so wound up in my own problems. Sarah squeezes my hand. But you couldn't help that. You were only twelve. I know, I reply. But there are times, even though I know the truth, there are times when I can't help but feel guilty about it. I should have noticed they were suffering as much as I was. We were both silent for a few moments. Sarah's right. I have no reason to feel guilty. But when I found out their insomnia was my fault, I had no choice. If I slept, they slept. If I didn't, they suffered. Then, I say, breaking the silence as if I was a stone and it was glass. Then they told me I had to keep killing. I had to keep helping people with their suicides for all our sakes. If I didn't, I wouldn't sleep. But more importantly, if I stopped, if I tried to fight it, not only would they not sleep, they'd die. They'd die because I'd be starving them to death. Once I hit puberty, their means of sustenance changed for good. They were left with no choice but to live off the souls I'd provide. I finished the warm wine and reached for the bottle standing on the floor beside me. Filling my goblet to the brim, I poured the last droplets into Sarah's half-full glass. I down mine in one. She sips at hers. So, I try and say as I gag on swallowing too much wine in one go, if you want me to stop this, if you want this to end, if you want us to live a normal life, I have to get you pregnant, which I'm reliably informed would happen first time, and we have to have a child, a boy, who will then take up the tradition of keeping us alive by killing the desperate. Do you think you could do that? Do you, really? I look into her eyes. The moon gives me my answer. Sarah was found three days later, her bloated body discovered floating in the local canal by a group of teenage canoeists. Reports stated her body was filled with a cocktail of marijuana, paracetamol, and wine, and she probably didn't feel much about her death. I might have loved the girl, but she was willing to subject her child to a life of killing just so she could survive. I couldn't be that selfish. I might be my parents' son, but I'm not my parents. The End When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That was Sean Hamilton's My Parents' Son, as read by Brian Rollins. Brian Rollins was born in California and grew up in and around the western U.S. He currently resides in Highlands Ranch, Colorado, where he works as a voice artist, primarily focused on audiobooks. He's probably best known for being the voice of the Glenn and Tyler series of audiobooks written by J.B. Sanders. Fun fact about your host, I also lived in Highlands Ranch, although when I was much younger. We lived on White Cloud Drive just across C-470 from Littleton, and I'd walk up Dad Clark Drive to Sand Creek Elementary. I remember one year being moved to the basement due to a tornado. On the way down to the shelter, outside the school, there was the tornado, big as God. After the storm passed and they let us all out of the basement, we found out that the tornado had stolen all of the school's lawn and swings. Brian, thank you for your read, and I hope you're keeping Highlands Ranch strange in my absence. Our second story of the night comes to us from Billy Sue Moseyman, author of more than 60 books on Amazon. Moseyman is a thriller, suspense, and horror novelist, a short fiction writer, and a lover of words. In a diary, when she was 13 years old, she wrote, I want to grow up to be a writer. Her books have been published since 1984, and two of them received an Edgar Award nomination for Best Novel and a Bram Stoker Award nomination for Most Superior Novel. In 2014, The Gray Matter received a nomination for the Kindle Book Award. She has been a regular contributor to a myriad of anthologies and magazines with more than 200 short stories published. Her work has been in such diverse publications as Horror Show Magazine and Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine. She taught writing for Writer's Digest and for AOL Online, and gave writing workshops locally in Texas. She was an assistant editor at a Houston literary magazine and co-edited several trade paperbacks anthologies with Martin Greenberg. Her latest work in paperback and Kindle Digital is Sinister, Tales of Dread 2013, a compilation of 14 new short stories. In December 2014, Sinister Tales of Dread 2014 debuted with 13 news stories. Link to her Amazon page is in the show notes. Just before we dive in, this one was a bit of a tragedy of the submissions process. As a boy from southeastern Ohio, I have a special place in my heart for anyone that has two first names, but this story I really enjoyed, and when it was submitted, I had hoped to fast-track it to airing. That was two years ago, right about the time that we were talking about putting a tourniquet on submissions for a bit. 
this story ran afoul of that, and I can say very much better late than never. Give a listen to Billy Sue Moseyman's Carnival Freaks. And, oh, I'm so happy that we got Josie Babin to do this one. The sideshow audience was full and well spent. There had been so many acts and exhibits that horrified, thrilled, and awed that they were as emotionally limp as wet laundry. When the show wound down and was about to end, out walked the announcer, who had changed from his carny clothes of striped pants and checked vest into a black tuxedo, white pleated shirt, and black bow tie. He carried a top hat, sweeping it below his knees as he bowed, and the audience applauded the show's success. Then he stood erect, donned the ridiculous hat, and said, Ladies and gentlemen, that was our spectacular show, and we want to thank you for your diligent attention. Audience members began to gather purses and stuffed animals, one on the midway, bags of peanuts and half-eaten hot dogs. They prepared to rise to their feet and struggle from the makeshift folding seats to the sawdust-covered center aisle. "'But I require you to remain where you are just another minute, if you don't mind. "'We have one more exhibit to offer those of you intrepid enough to indulge your deepest fears. "'For the price of another single admission price, we will show you something the world has never witnessed. "'Science denies its existence.' This is our secret freak, our freak of freaks, our ultimate show that few have ever dared lay eyes on, ladies and gentlemen. Now the audience was riveted to the seats, all scuffling silenced, all movement to leave abandoned. They gaped at the well-dressed announcer, blinking with some confusion. I offer you a tour down this narrow hallway to see behind a glass enclosure, close enough for you to touch, only inches away from this freakiest of freaks the world has ever seen, just for one more admission price, just for a single fiver. I can't reveal what you will see because I cannot share that with this entire audience. I can tell you, however, that if you desire to see with your very own eyes something so astounding, so singularly disturbing, so world-shattering as what we have waiting, then I urge you to take this final, this glorious, and never-seen-by-the-eyes-of-man tour. He paused theatrically, looking around the rows of seats all the way to the back of the tent, from the right, and then from the left. He took off his top hat and held out his arm, indicating a direction. Just down this hallway, not for the faint of spirit. If you have a bad heart, please do not take this tour. We cannot be held responsible for fainting or any harm caused to the nervous system. If you want to see a wonder of the unnatural world, I ask you to step right up. 
He strode from the raised stage and down the four wooden steps to the sawdust floor to stand in front of his captive assemblage. Only the bravest should take me up on this offer. Will the rest of you please exit the tent, and we thank you for your patience, and I hope you enjoyed the sideshow. He stood waiting, eyeing the crowd as it rose, almost as one body, and began to flood into the center aisle. In the front row, his gaze fell upon a woman clutching her purse to her bosom. She came forward, her head thrust out, her eyes narrowed. A true, real freak? she asked. Yes, ma'am, a true, real freak. Nothing you will ever see anywhere else, I guarantee. She lowered her purse, snapped it open, and handed him a five. I want to see, she said. Of course. He took the money and grinned devilishly. He pointed her to a side flap. Just that way, he said. Wait at the flap until you're instructed to enter. Behind her waited a dapper little man in a brown suit. I want to go in, too. The announcer took his bill and asked him to wait with the first woman. From out of the crowd milling to the exit, another man, this one with hard, flinty eyes, came forward holding out money. Thank you, sir. You've made a wise choice. Please get in line. A third man separated himself from the exiting mob, pushing out with his hands to get back to the stage front. He asked, You say this is worth it? It's better than the bearded lady and the alligator man? Absolutely, sir. Worth every single penny. I'll be back to complain if that's a lie, the man said. He was tall, thin, with a pencil mustache. He looked well-heeled and not the sort who went in for freak shows. But those were the ones the announcers sometimes expected to see interested most in the extra show. You won't be disappointed, sir. Please join the line for your turn. The tent was almost empty. At the end of the first row, a young woman sat, watching, scowling. The announcer cocked his head, staring at her quizzically. Are you of an age? he asked. The young woman stood, and she was tall and full of sharp angles. Her elbows stuck out of her shirt, her chest was bony beneath a white lacy blouse, and her legs were stick-like. She was money, old money at that, if the announcer was asked to guess. Her hair was professionally groomed, pulled back from her face in a blonde chignon held with a pearl comb. She wore two rings on each hand, all four glittering of gold and sparkling with faceted jewels. She carried a leather bag on her shoulder and wore elegant black flats. She didn't look as if she should even be in the tent, but there was a reason. There was always a reason. I'm old enough to see anything you've got back there, she said. And how old is that, milady? She had reached him, and the tent was emptied except for the small group waiting at the side flap. Her voice was silky and sophisticated as she handed him a five-dollar bill and said, Old enough, I told you already. Now take the money and let me see what you think you've got. 
He bowed to her, took the bill, and gestured her to get in line. Once he was sure there would be no other patrons, he joined the little group to instruct them. One at a time, please. My assistant will come to the flap and let you know when it's your turn. Be patient. We allow everyone all the time necessary to examine this extraordinary exhibit. And I assure you, it's going to be worth it. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and have a wonderful time. He left them standing, disappearing behind the curtains at the back of the stage. The five people who had paid to see the super freak stood looking anywhere but at one another. It was as if they were in partnership to do something unmentionable, something for which they hoped to remain anonymous. They waited. The first woman to enter behind the flap found the narrow hallway created by tent fabric claustrophobic and the light much too dim. She moved slowly, reaching out to each side of her, squinting ahead. She could see a brighter light further on and began to hurry. As soon as she reached the beginning of the glass wall, she halted and gasped. A bright overhead light shone down on a very fine-looking man, with shiny brown hair, dressed in a gray suit and a light blue shirt. He gave her a winning smile. She thought she would faint. From the shoulder of the man sprouted a second head, this one looking somewhat similar to the smiling man, except that this head lolled on the shoulder, eyes closed, mouth agape hair thinning and in disarray. God, the woman breathed. Hello, dear. So happy you've come to see me. And me. She had stepped a few feet closer to the glass, centering herself before the two-headed freak. She now glanced around, because there was a second voice, but she had no idea where it had originated. What? Her voice was a squeak, and she could feel her heart booming in her chest. I said, Hello, happy you're here, said the smiling head. And me, I am the not-so-pretty head. I have other talents that make up for my grotesque appearance. You are hearing me in your head. What? The squeak was nearly a roar. She began to shake, and her legs felt rubbery. Was the lolling deadhead speaking to her? Of course I am, you silly woman. Now let's get down to the grit of you. Because we have so little time. I can tell you are a black widow. The woman began to back from the window. The smiling head said, reaching out elegant hands towards the glass, Oh, come now, and don't be afraid. He can't get to you. You're safe beyond this glass, dear. Don't go before the secrets are told. He, he's talking to me? Oh, yes, he is, dear. It's the only way he can speak at all. Now listen, if you really dare. You are the freak. You're on your third identity and third husband. You poisoned the first two and will poison this one as well. The insurance money is so tempting, isn't it? You think I'm the freak. You think we are the freaks. You are the freak, Mrs. Gofried. 
You actually like committing murder. It thrills you. That's the real secret you hide deep in your soul. You like killing. Dear Lord, the woman backed away until she hit a tent pole behind the opposite wall of fabric in the hallway. You will never meet the Lord. He has no use for the likes of you. Your soul is a pit, Mrs. Gofried, and it's so dark there. You don't even know there are snakes writhing and rats running through your veins. How do you know all this? Now she was shrieking, but it was so high-pitched it was almost a whistle lingering in the air, leaving behind the memory of words. He knows everything, doesn't he? The smiling head grinned wider and began to look as freakish as the lolling, slobbering dead head. He knows you down to the bone, dear. He's showing you the freak inside. Isn't it beautiful? Mrs. Gofried turned and ran for the exit at the end of the long hallway, between tents. Behind her she heard derisive laughter, but never knew if it came through her ears or her thoughts. A beautiful girl in a tight red sequin dress came to hold the flap aside and gestured the next in line, the little man, to enter the hallway and view the exhibit. He smiled nervously and glanced back at the others, shrugging his shoulders. The flap closed behind him. He could smell odd scents. An antiseptic, hot cotton candy swirling in a metal tumbler, sauerkraut an old spice aftershave. He was very sensitive to scents and brought out a handkerchief from his pocket to cover his nostrils. He walked down the hallway toward the lighted exhibit without fear. What was to fear? This was just another freak in a mildly entertaining sideshow. Nothing to be afraid of. He came up on the glass enclosure and almost ran away. He saw the two-headed man, and his mouth tightened into a thin line of disapproval. What in the world? I assure you, we are of this world. Nothing alien about us, the smiling head said, giggling and nodding his fine head. Next to his cheek, the dead head hung chin to chest, drooling spit down the nice suit, the orbs of the eyeballs rolling behind closed lids. Hello, my fine freak friend. Your name is Harvey. In your church they call you Deacon Harvey. And the people you burgle call you a black-hearted thief. You live a dual life to make up for how little you were born, and how big you mean to make yourself. Isn't that so? Or do you not understand your motives? Harvey's hand lowered the handkerchief from his mouth. He stared wide-eyed at the creature before him. What are you saying? Oh, that's my brother. He does rattle on so, doesn't he? He knows all your secrets, and I know none. I got the looks, he got the brains. What can you do? Harvey glanced at the smiling man and winced with instant understanding. You're inside my head. Oh, no, 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 not me. It's him. He jerked his head to the side touching foreheads with his brother. He's right, you know. He got the looks. I got the gift. I have to be fed. 
and half of what's on the spoon falls out of my mouth. I have no life except what's in my head. It's a vast landscape I roam all alone, despite how close I am with this beast who carries me around on his shoulder. But let's talk about you, Harvey. What a godless, unholy thing you are, Harvey said, backing from the glass, preparing to scamper down the hall and away from the monstrosity. I am godless. I am unholy. You pretend to be a devout Christian. You pretend to be a good, upstanding citizen. You pretend everything, Harvey. You are so full of deceit it oozes out of your skin like sweat. You climb through windows in the night. You pad down hallways and upstairs that do not belong to you. You go through ladies' jewel boxes. And then you go through their underwear drawers. You are a despicable little man. You are a weasel and a liar of the first order. I, on the other hand, pretend nothing. I am an abnormal aberration of nature, a mistake locked onto a silly body with my ignorant brother for all of my days. Yet, yet I can see into you. I see how sneaky and dark your intentions, how disreputable you are. I am the one being on earth who knows what a sham you are and always will be. God help us! Harvey ran for the exit fast as his short legs could convey him. At his back he heard the laughter trail him like a ghost with a wild dog baying at its side. The assistant lifted the flap and gestured in the third patron, a man with shifty, angry eyes and a tick that caused his upper lip to lift and drop lift and drop. This man wore workman's clothes, dark blue pants, and a short-sleeved shirt with his name in white script. Jerry. Once this man reached the glass, he almost turned away in order to run down the hall to find a way out. But the smiling man's voice stopped him. He waited, shivering, hunching his shoulders. Oh, dear, don't be that way. Don't be so afraid. Now you've hurt our feelings. "'Hasn't he hurt our feelings, brother? "'And I wore my best suit tonight. "'Petty criminal. "'What the hell did you say?' "'The smiling man put out his hands in apology. "'I said nothing, friend. "'I expect that was my brother. "'Jerry stared hard at the inanimate head "'that hung on the shoulder. "'A horrible thing that only a demented god "'must have created. "'I'm a mechanic,' he protested. I'm no damn criminal. Mechanic, my ass. You're a petty criminal these days, lifting purses from old ladies and their social security checks like the coward you are. But you were a big-time criminal at one time, weren't you, Jerry? You escaped jail after sentencing, before they could ever transport you to a prison. "'Disappeared twenty years ago. "'You killed your landlord, "'stabbed him with a butcher knife "'when he tried to throw you out of the building. "'Since then you've kept on the move "'and changed your name a dozen times. "'You're a liar. Get out of my head. "'I know how you're going to end up, too, Jerry. "'Do you want to know? "'Are you brave enough to listen "'to what the future holds for you? "'Apparently not. 
Jerry hightailed it down the hall as if he were on fire. "'Oh, don't be that way!' called the smiling man. As the flap closed behind him, the tall, thin patron sauntered down the hallway, full of confidence and expectation. He had not been amazed or awed by the original sideshow freaks, and had hoped there was something grand, something extreme, or something horrific waiting behind the glass enclosure he saw lighted halfway down the narrow-tented hall. He stopped before the glass, and his mind slipped gears. He thought of two-headed calves and two-headed frogs. He could not think straight enough to take in what he was looking at behind the glass. "'Hello there. We are so glad you've come to see us.' The thin man stared first at the smiling handsome head, and then the dead-looking head with the rolling eyeballs, moving behind the closed lids like fat ball bearings, pushing and straining behind wispy cloth. "'You are a madman. "'But you know that, don't you, Davenport?' "'Davenport flinched. "'He knew immediately this voice came from inside his own head. "'He frowned and growled low like a tiger going to ground, ready to leap. "'I know what you're thinking, but no, you can't get to us. "'This glass is impenetrable.' "'There's a labyrinth between where you stand and where we are enclosed. "'If you tried, you'd never find us before we disappeared.' "'I could try,' Davenport said. "'His eyes had gone cold as a stony beach in winter. "'How are you talking to me in my head?' "'Never mind that. "'You should be used to voices, Davenport. "'You've followed so many for so long.' They helped you escape the loony bin, after all. Mental facility, Davenport corrected. Have it your way. The voices helped you do the research necessary, and they taught you the techniques of faking medical degrees so that you could pass yourself off as a physician. Quite an intelligent accomplishment for a madman, Davenport. Who told you all this? He knows everything. The smiling man grinned idiotically. Davenport didn't even spare him a glance at the interruption. He kept his attention on the slobbering, blind head. Answer me. Who told you these things? God? The devil? Fairies under the fairy bridge? What do you care? I know you. That is what's important here. I know about the syringes of air you give to sick patients of other doctors on staff at Bradbury Hospital. I know all about the satisfaction you get from your death-dealing. It enlarges your madness, it feeds it, and it makes you, day by day, year by year, into a proper monster. I'm not listening to more of this rubbish. Davenport turned and began to trot away. He heard the laughter mocking him and turned back in a flash. He rushed to the window and beat on the glass with both fists. I'll kill you, you two-headed freak bastard. I'll find you and kill you both. The laughter rang now outwardly inside Davenport's mind. Both brothers emitted gales of laughter that forced Davenport to cover his ears and run for the exit before his eardrums burst. The assistant held the flap for the last paid patron for the show. 
smiling gently at the scrawny girl who ducked to keep her hair from being mussed as she sailed under the flap and into the hallway. She walked slowly, hands held together at her waist, elbows jutting. She wore a stalwart look, her eyes frosty and unfathomable, just as if she owned the sideshow, the carnival, as if she owned the whole world. When she reached the glass, she stood still, her expression unchanging. "'Hello, freak,' she said, sarcasm dripping from her tinny voice. "'Hello, dear,' the smiling man inclined his fine head. "'Who are you calling freak, you skinny, mean, murderous freak of a girl?' The girl stiffened even more, her spine rigid. Her lips turned down and her eyes blazed. "'What did you just say to me?' "'I called you a skinny, mean, murderous freak.' Now she knew for certain the voice was in her head, and yet it was not her own. She stared at the lolling head and watched the saliva leak out and drip like white honey to the man's gray suit jacket that was already splotched with it. "'Who are you?' "'I'm your worst nightmare, Mary Beth. I can read your blackened and pitted mind. I know you're fourteen years old. I know when you were twelve you pushed your older brother off the edge of the subway into the path of a coming train. I know it was ruled an accident. It was the same with your older sister when you were thirteen and she was seventeen. They said she had a weak constitution.' They said she had allergies to foods. They never did an autopsy. Lucky for you, wasn't it, Mary Beth? She loved mushrooms, didn't she? So you found some yellow caps in the woods behind that looming mansion you live in and fed them to her, all to be sure you'd inherit the family fortune. All for your ambition, your greed, your rage. I'm leaving now. Mary Beth's cheeks were as rose-red as if she were a rouged doll. She twisted away from the glass, but before she could hurry from the exhibit, the voice in her head shouted at her, "'You should wait. You're the one I mean to tell the future.' She froze and turned her head on her skinny neck to stare through the glass. The smiling man moved closer to the window, but she refused to be intimidated. She stood her ground, seething. "'You don't know the future. You're just a dumb freak playing a little game. I wouldn't even trouble to spit on you if you passed me in the street. You're garbage they forgot to take out. You're the fetus they neglected to abort. You're nothing, and I'm not afraid of you. Either of you.' "'Not afraid? You will be, Mary Beth. Just give it a little time.' You see, I brought all of you in here. I created your desire and your curiosity. I brought in a woman who kills her many husbands for insurance money. I brought a church deacon who is a cat burglar and a sexual pervert. I brought in an escaped convict who committed murder and now robs little old ladies. And just before you, I brought a madman who is an imposter doctor. He gets his jollies by injecting unsuspecting patients so they die ugly, unnecessary deaths. Worse than me, 
Mary Beth made a move to leave again. What do I care? Not one of them are worse than you, not a single one. How can you say that? They've killed two. They are mad criminals, insane people and murderers. It's true, they are. But your ambition is unrestrained, Mary Beth. It's so strong. It's the most dangerous of all obsessions, don't you think? You were willing to kill family. You turned on your own blood. You weren't born with a conscience. Your heart is the blackest of all, black as a cave deep in a mountain, black as the outer void beyond the universe. You are nothing but a ridiculous freak. I don't have to believe a word you say. This is all a setup, some kind of trick. Now back off. For the third time, she turned to go, holding her bony shoulders back, her chin up, her head high. They will exhume your sister, Mary Beth. Your father suspects you. He's not as unobservant as you think. You're going to get caught, locked up, and you won't get out of prison until you are a very old woman. They will try you as an adult. This time Mary Beth kept walking, her head high, her mind shut against the warning. She exited the tent and hurried to find her father where she had left him on the midway, looking for her while she had sneaked into the sideshow. It was only days later the circus freak's prediction came true. Her father braced her with questions she tried to answer, but he kept interrupting her excuses, accusing her of wrongdoing. He said, I knew something was wrong, Mary Beth. You're the only one I confided in about my terminal condition. You knew I hadn't long to live. You hated your brother and sister, didn't you? Didn't you? If your mother were alive, she would die of horror at what you've become. Mary Beth ran to her room, weeping crocodile tears. Once behind her door, she began to plot. It was hours later night engulfing the quiet mansion in shadow, when Mary Beth crept down the stairs to make sure her father was asleep in bed. It was true, she decided, what the sideshow monster had told her about the future. Her father's suspicions were at their highest peak ever, and even if it meant his fortune would have to be left to charity, he was sure to bring her to justice for her crimes. That was the kind of father fate had saddled her with in this dreary, horrible life. Not only was she the youngest child, she was indisputably the ugliest. Not only had her siblings been brilliant, they had also been beautiful. She hated them with a passion from early childhood, and that passion burned bright as a dying star. If she had it all to do over again, she would still find a way to murder them. She left the stairs and tiptoed into her father's library. She went to the secret panel and the safe there. She would have to take as much cash as he had stashed and disappear before the exhumation. For although he hadn't threatened it, she knew he would come around with the idea it had to be done, if only to satisfy his suspicions. She would have to start a new life before he went that far. She cursed her father, cursed her destiny. Why couldn't anything ever go her way? Her father was dying, her siblings were dead. She was all the family left to take over and run her father's multimillion-dollar businesses. Why had life sabotaged her this way, ruining every plan she made? 
As she was fiddling with the flashlight and reaching for the combination lock, she felt a sudden sharp pain in her left scapula that caused her to almost pass out. She swayed on her feet, dropped the flashlight, and held on to the wood-paneled door to keep from fainting outright. Oh, God, she thought, what's happening? Am I having a heart attack? She bit down on her lower lip. As the pain passed, she stumbled in the dark to chase the flashlight that had rolled a few feet away. When she bent to retrieve it, another sharp pain brought her to her knees. She reached for her shoulder and pressed down, trying to bar the pain. She gasped. She felt an ominous knot, and, in the darkness, her eyes grew wide in fear. She got hold of the flashlight, twisted her head, and aimed the bright white beam on her shoulder. She pushed back the collar of her blouse. She saw it now. The knot was no knot at all. It was a tiny head. She clenched her eyes shut, then opened them again, hoping to find it gone. No, she thought. No, 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 no. A cold shot of adrenaline forged through her body like a ship steaming full throttle across a placid ocean. Her vision was clear, her mind blankly open in fascination. There was no hair on the tiny head, just a skull covered with her taut skin. The miniature face was misshaped, the nose flattened to one side, the lips hanging open on raw gums, the little eyes closed against the world. Even as she stared, dumbfounded, the head grew, stretching against the skin and muscles of her body, inching forth into the world. She saw the beginning of a neck, the tendons tightly coiled, stretching, arching, "'Hello, Mary Beth. Can we be friends?' The shock of the new voice inside her head traveled through her body, shaking her to her very depth. She dropped the flashlight and screamed. Enveloped in a giant black hoodie, the skinny blonde girl crept around the tents of the sideshow. She could hear the announcer inside introducing the acts. She passed by the carnival barker, counting his proceeds from the crowd inside and turned the corner of the tent. High overhead, a full moon rode a gray, cloudless sky, tracking her with shadow. Beneath her feet, the gravel wheezed as she stepped forward. The scent of doughnuts fried in pots of hot grease made her stomach turn. She found the flap and pushed inside, shutting out the noise and babble of the midway. The hall was dark. She made her way by putting both hands on the canvas and following it until her fingers touched cold glass. "'Are you there?' she whispered. Light suddenly flooded the small enclosure behind the glass, and the smiling two-headed man stood there, as if he had been waiting ever since she had left days before. "'Hello there. We're glad you've come.' "'Shut up,' she said. "'Talk to me, deadhead.' Hello, Mary Beth. I knew you'd be back. She threw back the great black hood of her jacket and slipped it off her shoulders to let it fall to the sawdust floor. Look at me, 
she glowered in fury. Look what you've done! Next to Mary Beth's normal head sat a second one just the same size. The eyelids closed with eyeballs rolling, the mouth agape and dripping saliva onto her shirt. Oh, how beautiful you are! Devil! Demon! Warlock! You put a curse on me! You've disfigured me! I did no such thing. That's your evil, Mary Beth. That's your heart and your soul. That's your twin self. The one that has wanted to come out all of your young life. And now it has. It was fueled by your mean spirit. It was born of your heartless ambition. I suppose it speaks to you, does it not? And is it wise, Mary Beth? We know it isn't really beautiful, not like your brother and sister were before a trained dismembered one, and a deadly mushroom poisoned the other. But tell me, is it all you could ever want in a sibling? For the first time the girl revealed true emotion. She began to cry tears round and clear as thumbnail diamonds. They rolled unchecked down her thin, haggard cheeks. What am I to do? What's going to happen to me? Welcome, cried the smiling man, his grin as wide as the new moon. Yes, welcome, Mary Beth. Welcome to the sideshow. We can always use another freak exhibit. Maybe you can have a glass booth right next to us. Won't that be cozy? The girl leaned against the glass, defeated, and rested her forehead there. The second head pulled forward and pressed against the glass as well. This new monstrosity said in a cheerful, knowing voice, I love the carnival. We can have our own quarters. We can talk to the normal-looking freaks when they come by to gawk at us. We can plumb their souls and rend the darkness, spilling their secrets. All the dirty little secrets. The smiling man looked at the two heads pressed against his glass, and clapped his hands in the kind of glee usually only gifted to little children, or the senile elderly. Are you going to stay? Do you want to stay? We would love you to stay. Shut up. Mary Beth wiped her sniffling nose and raised both heads so she could look beyond the glass at her future. Just shut up, you babbling moron. The smiling head bobbed and beamed with good will, delighted with the girl and her sharp wit. He just loved his fellow freaks in the sideshow, and so did his brother. The more the merrier, he thought. There are never enough good freaks for the clientele. Mary Beth will be brilliant. Mary Beth pulled back her shoulders and tried to raise her head high. I hope you live long and die in torture. How odd you say that, Mary Beth. I wish the very same for you. The smiling man smiled like a goon. The world spun on its axis. The stars burned and blinked. The moon rode high. And the carnival played on. That was Billy Sue Moseyman's Carnival Freak, as read by Josie Babin.
By day, Josie is a biologist, a happy little cog in the grand machine known as medical research. When not at work or enjoying the great outdoors of San Diego, she can be found at home with her three loving companions, two feline and one human. She records in a tiny bedroom library surrounded by literature and scientific works as well as a few video game boxes. Thank you as always, Josie. It'll be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Our show was produced by our editors, Philip Oldham and Scott Silk, and theme music by David Raiklin, although we will have special guest outro music from Songs of the Pumpkin Boy. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.